Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In his 1990 article, Fundamentals of Grammatology, Peter T. Daniels proposed the Arabic term abjad to describe a type of Semitic script that denotes individual consonants only. Such languages force the reader to infer vowel sounds as they read the text. The term abjad is derived from the original pre-Islamic order of the first four letters of the Arabic alphabet, alif, beth, jim, dal, which correspond to other Semitic languages, notably Hebrew and Semitic proto-alphabets, specifically alif, bet, gimel, and dalit. For most, when discussing the Hebrew text of the Bible, the Masoretic text is an assumed reference point. However, insofar as the Masoretic was vocalized by someone else, its fidelity to the original is as much an interpretation as any English translation. The answer is not a better translation. The solution Rather, the challenge is for modern disciples of the Bible to submit to the original, unvocalized Hebrew text. This means learning to read Hebrew texts without vowels in the same way that modern Arabs read the morning newspaper, which is printed without vowels. Only then, will students of the Bible be liberated from the tyranny of the tower builders of Genesis 11, who impose control through their interpretations, part and parcel of their imperial languages. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 495 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The main way that empire imposes control is through language. In Genesis chapter 11, which I have been referring to over and over again lately in conversation and in preaching. Human beings build a tower, put their name on it, and explain if we can just build a tower that touches the heavens and put our name on it. It's not Trump Tower, but man, it sounds a lot like Trump Tower. If we just put our name on it, then we can gather everyone together and we'll be like God and we'll have control. 
And what does God do? He smashes the tower, scatters the people, and confuses their tongues. That is the function of biblical Hebrew. It is to undermine and work against the control that the tower builders exert through language. Biblical Hebrew, in a way, deconstructs and scatters what the imperial tower builders try to assert through the imposition of their one language. Now, at the time of the writing of the Old Testament, of course, we were talking about the Greek language. So when people keep insisting on the authority of the Septuagint over biblical Hebrew, they are, without realizing it, they are unwittingly working against the agenda of the Old Testament. We're not talking about the Masoretic. The Masoretic came later. It's the work of those who became lazy. I mean, imagine picking up the newspaper in the Middle East, which is unvocalized, and expecting someone to write the vowels in for you. That's what the Masoretic is. That's not what we're talking about. It's a complicated matter. We're not talking about something neatly packaged for you centuries later. We're talking about the texts to which Jesus is referring when he's speaking Greek to the Gentiles. Yeah, you know, Father, this topic of language and power is something that I spent a lot of time writing about in my book. So the person who's translating has to know the language that they speak and then the language that they're translating into. They have to know both languages. So that means that they're always going to be functioning as an intermediary. Martin Luther was the one who decided that it's okay to translate and read Scripture in the vernacular in whatever German dialect the people were speaking, it was okay to translate the Bible into this language and then read it. Now, the reason why he said was actually important, because he said nobody could understand the Scripture, because they were only reading it in Latin to people who didn't know Latin. Now, another thing that Martin Luther could have done is he could have funded schools to make sure that everybody was learning Latin, and then everyone would understand. But it was much quicker for him to do a translation, and then everyone could understand it without doing the hard work of learning Latin in order to understand the language. Same thing happened in North America before it was the United States. The first translation in the Americas of the Bible was into the Wapanoag language. And again, do you go around and teach all the Wapanoags English so they can read the English Bible? Or do you just translate the Bible into their language so that they can then understand it? And the translator said, you know what? If I just learn Wampanoag, it's easier than everybody learning English, so I'm just going to do that. And that's how he decided to do it. But this is always going to run into a problem because the translation cannot convey precisely what the text is trying to convey. It can't. And the problem is that there's going to be someone translating it for you, and then he's going to control the way that it's being translated and having to make decisions on your behalf on how you will understand something. I heard a wonderful comment by a professor of the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew language in South Africa, and he is white. 
And it's significant because he was teaching Hebrew, and I heard him talking to some of his black African students. And he said, the reason why you have to learn Hebrew is because you need to create your own translations. You need to be able to explain the Bible to your own people without depending on the colonials. Because it was the colonials who did the translation for you, but the colonials knew Hebrew and Greek. So you have a duty to learn Hebrew and Greek so you can understand Scripture and you can explain it to your own people. And as Father Paul always says, you know, when the Quran goes into Pakistan or Indonesia where they don't speak Arabic, the people don't need to know Arabic, but the Imam has to know Arabic so that he can explain the text to them. But if you have an American coming in and explaining to the Pakistanis what the, what the Quran is saying, there's a problem. The point of the scripture we're going to be reading now is this dispute we've had for a long time, you know, is the Septuagint canonical, is the Hebrew text canonical, yada, yada, yada. And the point that Father Paul always makes is that Hebrew is not an imperial language and is therefore anti-imperial. Greek is imperial because of Alexander the Great and his legacy. And the Hellenization, which said to the people around who are all Syriac speaking in the Middle East at this time, you need to be speaking Greek. And sure enough, if you look at Christian Syriac language, it's full of Greek words. The point is that in this section today, we're going to be hearing Jesus reading the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, as we would say today, but in the narrative here, reading the scriptures in Greek. Why would he read it in Greek? Wouldn't he read it in Hebrew? And what I think is happening here, and we'll get to it in a moment, is that he's in Galilee. People are not speaking Greek in Galilee. They're speaking Aramaic. They're speaking Hebrew or at least they're speaking Aramaic and understanding Hebrew. And so he reads it in Hebrew, but Luke, just like the New Testament in general, is trying to bring scriptures to the Gentiles. So he's not going to quote a section in Hebrew in his Greek text of the New Testament. Luke wasn't writing the New Testament. Luke was just writing. And so he must write in Greek so that other people in his audience, Greek-speaking audience, will understand, but this is only an invitation to go back and understand the Hebrew text, which is at the basis of what Jesus is reading here as far as Luke presents it. So it's a complicated argument to understand the dynamics of the language, but understanding that whatever language you are translating scriptures into, it is an invitation to go back and understand what scripture is saying in Hebrew. Now, Richard, you made the point, we're not talking about modern Hebrew, because modern Hebrew, insofar as it is now linked in the chain of colonial languages in the way that it operates in the modern Middle East, is not the same thing as biblical Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew is not a colonial language, and Father Paul argues in the rise of Scripture that it was concocted out of various Semitic tribal languages in order to present the biblical narrative in opposition to Hellenism. 
in opposition to the Greek language and the religion and culture and civilization that it imposed on the ancient Near East. So the language of the biblical text itself is part and parcel of the teaching of God. You cannot separate the message from the language itself. So a translation into another language ceases to be scripture. That is the argument that we are setting forth here. Now, with respect to the Septuagint, and it's a complicated argument, and we're not going to go through it here on today's program, but there's evidence in the text that the text of the Septuagint was the work of the authors of the Hebrew text. So it's not that the Septuagint isn't authoritative, but the Hebrew text is the Aleph and the Septuagint is the Bet. So we're not dismissing the value of the Septuagint because it's a tool that Jesus himself employs when he speaks Greek in the text of the New Testament, which is what Richard was alluding to here in the Gospel of Luke. God does not speak English. When Netanyahu and the Pope have a silly argument over what language Jesus spoke, did he speak Aramaic? Did he speak Hebrew? He spoke Greek. What do you mean, Father Mark? I mean the text. That's what I mean. I mean the text. I won't even say Luke wrote. Because once you say Luke wrote, I mean, we say it as a matter of convenience, Richard, when we're talking in the field of, you know, literary criticism. But when you say Luke wrote, you're already constructing a Luke in your mind. The text says, and what does it say? It says in Greek, Jesus said, which means Jesus spoke Greek. So let's not play games. We are dealing with the text. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So Jesus has already set the tone. He's not the reference. I love this story. He is not the reference. And this becomes the pattern. It is the pattern always for how Scripture works. We are now back in the first two chapters of Luke, where the command of God moves from womb to womb. So long as God is the Father, he can do his work as he intended in Genesis, where we don't build anything, we don't assert anything, and we accept that he is the one who has hegemony, then something can happen according to his will. And that's what we're seeing here now, because Jesus has already said no. He said no to the devil. I don't want to be on top of anything. I don't want to control anything. 
I'm not interested in dynasty. I'm not interested in any of this nonsense. And so now we'll see what God does with Jesus by the power of the Spirit with respect to the temple. I like tracking how the Spirit is functioning in this text, because we had the Spirit coming into the four mothers and fathers when they were speaking, and we had the Spirit that came in the form of a dove when he was declared to be the Son of God. We had the Spirit that led him out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil, and now it's the Spirit is leading him into Galilee. And this image of the Spirit and where the Spirit is going, it's fascinating to see that the Word— first of all, the Spirit is functioning independently of Jesus. We have it appearing before Jesus' birth. But we have then Jesus being led. So this Spirit is functioning according to the Father's will, and Jesus is following it. Jesus is going about his business according to where the Spirit leads him. And remember last time we talked about how, you know, the devil is there, and then he kind of withdraws. We're waiting for him to come back, but he never comes back. The Spirit keeps coming back. The Spirit keeps leading him around. So if we think of the Diabolos who's trying to lie to him, who's trying to pluck the seed of the word out of Jesus's heart, we have the spirit which is actually leading him around. And so now we have Jesus appearing in Galilee, and the news about him has already gotten out. So the word, the report has already gotten out, and now Jesus is going around, but it's in Galilee. So why Galilee? Well, Galilee is this non-Greek-speaking Gentile area. It's where the rabbis see their kind of spiritual home in the rabbinic literature. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. A couple of things stand out right off the bat. Number one, it's the synagogue. The devil offered him hegemony over the temple, which was a lie. The temple is a lie, and human hegemony is a lie. Again, I'm going to keep saying this because it's just so beautiful. In a world in 2023, when everyone is saying yes to me, yes to power, yes to my destiny, Jesus keeps saying no. So I'm going to keep saying it. Jesus said no to the devil, no to the temple, and no to his own glory. And in that scenario, the Spirit carried him out to Galilee, where it's a big Greek salad. I know, I said Greek salad. I should probably say fatouche, but whatever. It's a big salad, a whole giant mix of different people, including Jews and Gentiles. It's the marketplace in the good sense. It's not about making money. It's about a big mix of different kinds of people together. And in that setting, you have the synagogue, which is the product of Pharisaism, meaning this push to make Judaism, which has nothing to do with modern Judaism, please don't do that. We're not talking about modern-day Judaism or modern-day Christianity. Just stop, okay? There's no connection between these people and us. The only thing that's germane here is that we have a text that we have to travel back and submit to. As I said to someone recently, yes, there is a filter because your tornado is not the same thing 
as a sandstorm in Saudi Arabia. So it may be that we live here in Minnesota, Rich. That doesn't mean that we can't travel to Saudi Arabia to witness a sandstorm, but you cannot talk about the Holy Spirit in terms of a tornado in Minnesota. It won't work. Now, we've done that on the podcast because we're trying to come up with ways to explain to people the destructive power of the Spirit. But the fact of the matter is, you have to do so always in terms of the setting of the text itself. It's extremely important. So we have to submit to the setting of the text, which means it does have a filter, and it's not our filter. That's the trick. So whatever Judaism we're dealing with here, it's not our Judaism in contemporary Western Europe or the United States, nor is it the Judaism of World War II, nor is it the Judaism of the Middle Ages, something different. There is no continuity. So it's like this thing when people say ancient faith. What do you, I mean, people talk about an ancient faith and it's coming to you over the internet, over the airwaves. How could that be an ancient faith? To me, the dissonance is beyond comprehension, the way that people talk. It's silly. In any case, I digress. The synagogue in that setting was an effort by the Pharisaic movement to take the scroll of the Torah out of the cult and into the wilderness, away from the city, away from the temple. That's what the synagogue is, which I love to keep reminding people is what the New Testament is doing. It's trying to set the scroll of the Torah free from the shackles of the temple. I find that fascinating, Rich. And that's where we find Jesus. Jesus is going around all over the place. There is a problem in the translation that I would tweak a little bit. The, the word in Greek is adidaskin, which is he was teaching. He wasn't he began teaching, but he was teaching in multiple synagogues. That's what the Greek is emphasizing, that he was going around to different synagogues. And he was being glorified by everyone. That's a significant note there, that he was being glorified. And you and I, we're always uncomfortable with this because really, in the end, Jesus doesn't receive any glory. And so these declarations of Jesus's glory are betraying a misunderstanding of what glory means, which is the whole point of the New Testament, to turn on its head what we think glory is and how that even functions and what it means to be glorified by the Father, all this kind of stuff. The whole New Testament, in my mind, is trying to upturn this notion. So when we hear that he's being glorified by everybody, oh boy, this like raises all kinds of red flags. So that's something we're going to be paying attention to as we see how this unfolds. So we have Jesus appearing at all these different synagogues. He was teaching in all these synagogues, and they all loved what he had to say, or at least they loved him. Like, that's always the funny thing is sometimes people can come and they can say terrible things and smile nicely, and everyone just smiles along saying, when are you going to be able to come back and tell us these nice things again? Maybe they're not paying attention. We're going to have to see in this passage that he actually does read and is testified to in Luke 
We'll see how this interacts with, let's say, this declaration of glory by all the people. This is the riddle of Ezekiel. I love this word, heda in Hebrew. Once you realize that Scripture is not to be interpreted, but to be worked at, it's a riddle. Why shouldn't we glorify Jesus? I don't know. That's your problem. All I know is that in the previous passage, the devil was tempting Jesus to seek his own glory. And the devil said he would seek another opportunity. And here we are in verse 15, and everybody's glorifying Jesus. (laughs) Now, if you're not confused by that, that's your problem. If you're that shallow and you think it's simple, oh, yes, let's clap for Jesus, that's your problem. Be shallow. There's a program on Disney right now. Go flip the cable channel and leave us alone. But for those of you who are serious, Scripture is a riddle. There is more here than meets the ear or the eye. And it's worth the effort. Because if you think this is about Jesus being fooled, you're the fool. Because Jesus is written here for your sake. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. You've just heard Thank the you, Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.